Um, well, it is a great honor and privilege being with you. Um, I speak like an American to some people. Americans don't think I do because I was born in South Africa. I was raised in South Africa and I didn't learn English and when I, until I met my wife, who's an American. And I had to figure out how to like love somebody in English. And that was a really big challenge. Um, after about 10 minutes of conversation, I felt like I wanted to quit life. My brain was overheating, you know. South Africans have big hearts but small brains. Um, I feel like Canadians have big brains and big hearts. You guys are really extra, extra special and Filipinos has everything. Um, you know, I, I'm really honored to be a part of this spiritual family. Pastor Matt, thank you, you and Kat, for what you guys are doing here. Uh, I am just sitting here unbelievably encouraged by what God's doing here. Um, I get to travel quite a bit and see God move in different parts of the world. And you can get around among a group of people and you can sense the presence of God around them. And you can sense that God's really among these people. Uh, and, and I sense the, the pure presence of the Holy Spirit here among you. I sense a real desire. Even as the worship team was singing, you guys were just lifting them as we were lifting the name of Jesus in worship. And I just thought, man, it's such a privilege being here. And then Pastor Greg Mitchell and his son Jonathan and the team uh, in, Van in the other part of Vancouver, I guess there he is, Vancouver, or it's not, or something, some, something on that line. Um, I've just been so impacted by Pastor Greg and his ministry. In 2012, I've never really met Canadians. I just know in 1995, we had a big fight against them in the Rugby World Cup. Um, <laughs> don't know if anyone ever watched rugby, but there was a big fight. You can go look it up on YouTube. It was a pretty big debacle. Um, and I remember then, like, these Canadians, I don't like them, you know. And South Africans don't like a lot of other people, um, if they're not South African, you know. Um, but when I met Pastor Greg in 2012 in the School of Ministry in America in the United States, I just, God just called me to, to the United States. And I have to be honest, I married an American, and uh, I loved a American. I didn't love Americans. Um, so I wasn't quite sure about that call to America, you know. I was like, Lord, I don't really understand this wrestled a little bit with him, but I met Pastor Greg, who's a Canadian um, in the School of Ministry, and he really impacted my life, and my ministry instantaneously was shifted. Um, I, I, he added things to my life as a leader, as a teacher, as a father, as a spiritual, import, um, a spiritual importation that instantaneously helped me become more effective in my mission ministry assignment in the United States. And I, had, I sent him some emails and things to testify about this. Say, hey, I, the things you taught me is working on my campus. Thank you so much for what you taught us. So you guys are a part of a great people. Uh, you guys have incredible leaders. And if I could live anywhere outside of Nashville, Tennessee, I would strongly consider Vancouver. Right. Uh, you have mountains, you have oceans, you have mountain biking and skiing, um, and, and, and you have really good food. So it's a great privilege being here. Let's pray and then get into the word of the Lord. Is that okay? Father, thank you so much for my family, my friends, Lord God. Lord, you place the lonely in family. You add us to people. We don't add people to ourselves, Father. Lord, you place us with people uh, that, that you gather under the banner of Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's a privilege to stand among my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. It's a privilege, Lord God, to break the word like bread and eat it. Lord, may your bread, your word nourish us this morning, Father God. Lord, may it bring life and, and energy to us, spiritual zeal to us, Father God. May it bring clarity to us this morning. Father, may we look more like you after this morning than we've ever looked. In the name of Jesus, not because I spoke, but your word spoke to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
All right, so I want to tell you a little bit about myself because I'm unfamiliar to many of you. Um, and, and, and then I would love to talk to you guys about holiness being revealed. And my story will tie into that a little bit. And then we're going to read from, the, from Leviticus chapter 16. Um, and then a couple other verses we'll read and tackle. And I warn you in advance, sometimes I, I'm, I have this problem. Like I, I get a little too excited. And then I get a little loud, okay? Now, I'm very, very aware that you guys have people that teach you that can teach the Bible without adding any loudness to it. So I just want to warn you, and sometimes my face gets really intense, you know, and, and my mom always said that was my happy face, you know. So I'm just giving you a little heads up, you know, a little cultural heads up. I'm a South African-American that can get a little passionate, okay. So just, just wanted to put that out there. So uh, I was raised in a Christian family in South Africa. Mom and dad went to church, drugged me to church my whole life. And I really did not care about church or Jesus or any of that stuff. I just did not want to go to hell. Uh, that sounded miserable. Uh, it sounded really bad. And um, I was very afraid of hell. Uh, I wasn't afraid of God. I was afraid of hell. And the only reason I was afraid of God is because He could send me to hell. Um, and, and I remember always walking and living in guilt. And then I tried to kind of balance my sin by good works. I was like, okay, I've, I've been really bad this week, so next week I have to be really good. And then I would feel like I would reach this equilibrium, this moral equilibrium. And I was trying to like toe that line and just toe that line. Uh, and it wasn't until I went to the University of Stellenbosch in Cape Town and I became a professional rugby player. I, wasn't, I was on the university, but I wasn't technically a student. I was paid to play rugby. I just lived on the university. Uh, and I had some friends that was students, that was universities, that was also young professional athletes that it was Christians, and they actually lived very different from the people that I was used to. And I remember the first time I met them, I thought, what is it about these guys? They're they different. They don't say the words I say. They don't drink the amounts of alcohol I drink. They don't get into the types of relational, uh, romantic type of situations that I get in very often, and that's terrible and, and hurtful to many individuals. Uh, and, and they are very respectful and they're loving. And this one guy who actually lives in Toronto now, he's a banker in Toronto. He was one of my teammates and he started taking me for breakfast. And every time I would have breakfast with him, I would feel the guilt and the shame that I lived with that was just normal to me. I didn't know that it, 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 it was unusual. Everyone I knew lived, we lived under this cloud of condemnation because we were condemned. We, our actions was condemning us. The lives we lived, we were bound. They said freedom. There's this freedom weekend. I didn't know what freedom was. I thought freedom was to be able to sin as much as you possibly can, to have as much money as you could possibly accumulate, and have as much fun as you possibly can all the time, and just do it and hope you don't die doing it. To me, that was freedom. And freedom was also the ability to have power and influence and people revere you. That, that was my idea of freedom. And I got around these people and they had a different type of freedom. They had a freedom to say no to things I could not say no to. They had a freedom to make decisions that was not just uh, helpful to, uh, to themselves, it was helpful to those around them. They had a freedom to not express words that caused damage. They had a freedom to respect the woman, these young men that would go to this every nation church in South Africa. And I always was thinking like, these guys are so different. What is it? And I would start doing some deductive reasoning. Okay, well, uh, they play rugby. I play rugby. They go to church. I sometimes go to church. They all come from good families. I come from a good family. They have uh, really attractive girlfriends. 
I have an attractive girlfriend. Like, so I would kind of like just do these basic deductive reasonings as a 19-year-old guy. And, and like, what is it that they have that I don't? I could not figure it out. And one day, I got to the end of myself. And my sin was strapped, has strapped me so much, it choked the life out of me. I was on the verge of suicide. I was famous. I achieved a lot of early success in life, became a professional athlete. Lifelong dreams became a reality early on in life. But I was so trapped and I, I was dying on the inside. And I said on a Sunday morning, God, if you still see me, just let me know. Because I can't imagine you would even look at me twice. I'm a sycophant. I'm a liar. I'm a hypocrite. My whole life is so warped. It's so wrong. And no one knows. I am fooling the world. My mom and dad thinks I'm the greatest Christian on earth. In fact, when I would go home to visit them, they would ask me if I would lead their Bible study. And they would give me a little verse, and I would take that verse, and I would read it, and I would get passionate, and I would be living in so much sin. My mom and dad had no idea. I was the hypocrite of hypocrites. I faked it until I thought I would make it. And in this moment, I said, God, and I acknowledged for the first time in my life, I acknowledged who I really was, and I had an understanding of who I really wasn't. I, I, it's as if I started realizing I was so sinful in the problem. I had a hard time seeing that because I always compared myself to other people. And I'm, I'm, I'm not as bad as Johnny. I'm not as bad as Pete. I'm definitely not as bad as Sarah. I mean, I'm not in prison. I'm not stealing stuff, you know. But in this moment, it's as if I became aware of a holy presence and a holy standard and perfection. And I was not that. And I just started confessing my state. And I wasn't a prayer or a confessor. It wasn't like a part of my life. And I'm just in my apartment. I said, God, I'm all these things. If you are there and you are interested in me, please let me know. The moment I said those words, ding, got a text message. It's my friend that's in Toronto, Sorrel. And he said, hey, come to Every Nation campus with us on the University of Stellenbosch tonight. And I thought, this is really strange. That I don't want to give God the credit for this, but that was... That was weird timing. I walk in that night, and that night I was introduced to holiness. I walked into this room, and there was a being that was invisible in that room that was nothing like me. He was superior to me. But instead of my whole life, I ran from God. I, I, if you invited me, people, they try to trap me. They would invite me to outreaches and say, hey, there's the speaker. And I would go, and then I'm, and the guy pulls out a Bible. I'm like, okay, I'm out. Like they tra- my, Have you ever tried to trap friends? You're like, hey, man, it's going to be cool. You come on out. You know? and, and you know that, man, you were hoping that they get saved. You know? And I would leave. I would say, man, this is, that's good stuff, but I, I'm not interested in that stuff. I don't want any of that stuff. But that night... I did not feel a need to run from holiness. I felt an invitation into holiness. Now, I didn't have these type of words to explain that, but that's what I felt. I felt for the first time in my life a desire to get to know Him who is truly holy. But my whole life, I thought that holy man and all His laws and all His principles and all His rules, that will kill my joy. That's going to kill my mojo. That's going to take my life. That's going to make me boring. That's going to make me... I wanted nothing to do with God. Religious people was my nemesis. I didn't like them. They were annoying. I would actually bully Christians. I would... We had a friend that was kind of a good guy. And break them. I would kick over his bike just for fun. 
We took his helmet that he has to put on his head. We did not very kind things to his helmet. Like I did not like this holiness and the holy people. They annoyed me because they convicted me of the life that I'm not living. And I felt it was impossible to get there. How do you stop doing the things you love? But that night something different happened. I felt an invitation into the presence of God. I felt an invitation by this holy, this holy being. And I felt this hand while who, the guy that was preaching, I didn't know who he was and he didn't know me. There's 500 students in this student room on the campus. And I felt this invisible hand just reach over all these people and just grab my heart. And as it grabbed my heart, something happened inside of me. Something happened to me. I wasn't doing something. I was just standing there, and it's as if God himself decided, today you are becoming my child. People say, did you give your life to Jesus? I said, I feel like God took my life that night. I don't feel like I really wanted to like, even make that choice. I just I remember this genuine, true desire to know God and stop running from him. And I, for the first time in my entire life, thought, you know what? I want him more than anything else. I don't care what I have to lose, what I felt in that room that, that night, what I became aware of that night in that room, the presence of the living God that's holy, that's pure, I felt an invitation into that. How's that possible? How can this man, that's not a very good man, this young liar, this young sycophant, this young hypocrite, this young selfish Man, destructive guy that's cheated on all his girlfriends, that has taken his dad's debit card without his dad's knowledge and bought things because he, he knew his dad wouldn't notice. How could this guy be invited in? How could God be interested in a guy like that? The world, if they knew me, they would hate me. They would despise me. I would, be, I would lose my contract most likely. Even the secular world would consider me evil if they truly knew who I was. Not even the Christian community. I wasn't even good enough if people truly knew who I was for even wicked people. Because my heart was corrupted. Oh, my heart was sick. But that night there was heart surgery that took place in that place. There was a supernatural touch of God. And he went, it's like a heart surgeon that didn't even have to open me up. He just went through my flesh, through my bone, and he touched my heart. And I stood there in that moment, and my whole life, my whole paradigm shifted. I just, my heart melted, and I started weeping uncontrollably. I felt love for the first time. Unconditional, undeserved love. And it blew my mind. I thought rugby would love me. It couldn't. I thought having a model for a girlfriend, that would love me. It wouldn't. I thought that uh, my community and my friends I've built over the years would love me unconditionally. They couldn't. But that night, I made true love. And the love of God encountered my soul. And what was crazy is I was, so, I was such a small-minded man, and I was so unaware of who God really is. I don't even know what happened. So I'm standing there, I'm crying, I'm weeping, I'm embarrassed and amazed. I feel love for the first time. And I go to my girlfriend, I say, listen, you and I, it's done, it's over. I said, I wanna start going to church, I wanna stop having 
all these things we've been doing, living like we're married, but we're not. And I want to get to know God. And she looked at me, and she kind of like had the like, you know, like, what's going on? And I said, I don't know what happened, but something changed, and I want to do what's right. I want to stop living the wrong way. And my heart changed. And see, this is the good news, not good advice. The good news is that God actually has the power and the authority to change us. He doesn't advise us to change. He doesn't say, you should change. You should become better. Because my whole life, that was the narrative I thought that was espoused by Christianity. Because I never read the Bible. I don't know what the Bible said, right? Read with me, if you don't mind. Leviticus chapter 16. And let's learn more about this. And last week, Pastor Greg did a great job introducing you guys to the concept of holiness. And he quoted Dr. Nick Nash, which says, I'm reading this quote, Holiness is a relationship in its purest form. And then he also quoted Dr. Richard Lentz from the Gospel Coalition, that the core idea of divine holiness is moral purity. God is in every source and standard of, God is the very source and standard of goodness. Now the text for today is Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, verses 20 to 22, and verses 29 to 30. I'm going to read these verses, and I'm going to share a couple thoughts for you, with you about the law, the purpose of the law, and sin, and, and how we can deal with this passage today. All right? Verse 1, and you can read along with me. Here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near became, and they became they, they near before the Lord, and they died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is, in, that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, and, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the, the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist. And at this point, everyone's thinking, what is this about? And wear the linen turban. And these are the holy garments. And, and he shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning at the holy place and at the tent of meeting at the altar and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the inequities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. Now note they're all all, all, all of it. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities. Say all with me, all the iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Verse 29 and 30, the final two verses. And it shall be a statue to you forever. That in the seventh month, which would be October, on the seventh day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do, shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Verse 30, for on this day, the day of atonement, for on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. And you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Atonement shall be made for you 
not by you. Atonement shall be made for you. The biggest farce or fallacy that humanity believes that deceives us, even within the church, is that we make atonement for ourselves. That we earn this atonement. And here's what happens, so you guys understand, just a quick overview. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the first three books in the Bible, okay? We have the story of creation. Man has complete freedom. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Man has complete liberty. The only thing man can do is decide what is good and evil. That's the only thing we couldn't do. That belonged to God because God is not morally subjected or subjective. He's objective. He is pure. He is holy. Therefore, He's the only one that truly can delineate between right and wrong. We are subjective to all these other things. We're not objective. We wrestle with these things. And He said, you have all my blessing, all my power, all dominion. Subdue the earth. Rule over it. Just do not take the decision of right and wrong in your own hands. That tree you may not eat of. If you do, you'll die. And we died. We did that which we should never have done. We try to take the definition and define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound familiar to you? Is that the echo of our time? Does that not sound like, oh, did this happen back then too? To this day, man wants to define what is right and what is wrong, but that decision lies exclusively with Him who is right in all His ways. Him who is pure in all His ways. Him who is holy in all His ways. And see, what I try to do until this, this providential moment in 2005, when I became a Christian, when I became a follower of Jesus, I was trying to make an atonement for myself. Man thinks they can save themselves but here's what we understand in Genesis so clearly. What man do that's plagued by sin, that's infected by sin, sin grows. Think about this for a moment. When you read Genesis, Adam and Eve made a decision to disobey God. And they ran from Him. God pursued them. But then Adam had sons, right? And the two sons that we hear about here is Cain and Abel. What happened to Cain and Abel? Cain killed Abel out of jealousy, right? And envy, okay? So then what happened to Cain... And his family, Cain, had a couple children. One of his sons called Lamech, or Lamech, or Lamech, depending on how you want to say that, or Lamech in Afrikaans, um, if you want to put it that way. Lamech becomes a polygamist. He marries multiple wives. And then what happens, we see more and more sin and destruction come and evil come in man. And man is constantly trying to espouse their own moral superiority and trying to find what's right and wrong. And we see this story of the fall of man. One decision led to so much pain and destruction that it got to a place that God had to redeem all of it. And that God even regretted making man. We cannot save ourselves. We are unable. Even your best effort to save yourself, even your best effort to purify yourself will lead to even more sin. See, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. We think because we live in a modern time that everyone before us were idiots. They were incapable. We think that they were just so jacked up, we're different. We're not like them. They were trying to solve moral problems, creating more moral problems. They were trying to come up with solutions, creating more problems to be solved. And even in the solution that they were proposing, more sin and pain would happen. I myself tried to, to rescue people before. Have you ever tried to do that? 
And I try myself to help people. Like I dated this girl that was addicted to cocaine because cocaine keeps, keeps a lot of models slim. It suppresses the appetite. So they look very unnatural in pictures. That no one naturally just looks that skinny unless there's something else going on, okay? Just like some dudes that look real big and veins pop out of them. They don't look like that naturally. They, they need some, something called stairways to get them there, okay? And I thought, before I knew Jesus, I can help her. I can help this girl. I'm gonna, and so I came up with a moral solution for her problem. But the problem is that this moral solution was originating in the heart of an immoral man. Have you ever tried to do this before? I can solve this. See, no, 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 no. The problem of sin, the atonement, the payment, the, 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 the resurrection, the restitution, the rehabilitation had to come from Him who is pure. And what we see here, we have Genesis, we have the fall of man, then we have Exodus, God pulls them out of Egypt, He pulls them into a new land, and now they're in a new land. And what happened to these people in a new land? Sin came in again. They did not know how to relate to their holy God. They, in, in fact, without clear, serious instruction, they would not know how to walk with God. And so we have the Levitical law that was given to us. What was the purpose of that? What, what, what is happening here? What, is, what are we understanding is that God is letting us know who He is. The purpose of the law is not to kill, is not to destroy, is not to condemn. It's actually to pull us, is to reveal who God is and to pull man to God. Laws are good. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, the law is not evil. Without the law, we wouldn't know what sin was. We wouldn't know the full extent and how evil things really is. It's kind of like what happened to me yesterday on the snow slopes. I personally felt like I'm kind of a good skier, even though I've only been four times. Because I've always gone with people that's pretty bad at skiing. And then yesterday I had, on that fateful day, Connor Bishop, a missionary of every nation, ENV, said, hey, I'm going to take you skiing. And I thought, I'm going to impress this dude. I'm going to show him how this 260-pound South African-American rugby player goes down these slopes. And uh, we put the skis on. But I quickly realized, even when he pulled up, this dude's got, like, next-level gear, man. Like, he's, like, like, even his gear's different. Like, you know, he's not renting anything. He's got it all. Like, I was like, man, and he's got, like, the, the coolest-looking stuff. And I'm like, ah, oh, he's, he's probably a little, maybe he's just got, like, he looks professional, but he's not professional. Maybe it's just the look, you know. Maybe he's just got good taste. And then Jonah's with him, was one of the Mitchells. And even Jonah's got his stuff. And Jonah's like, he's so relaxed, falling asleep in the back. And I'm like, man, I think maybe I can show them a little thing or two, you know? <laughs> we finally get my skis and all my stuff. And as this process is going on, I'm like, dude, I'm so not a skier. Like, these guys are like, like they, yeah, they just, they're on another level. And then... We get to the top of this slope, and this slope, you know, I like slopes that go like, that goes like this down, not like this down, and, and like that goes like this, and then it goes like this, and then you can kind of like feel safe again, and then it goes a little bit more, you know, and then there's some trees, and it's nice, and you know, it's kind of like a nice, hey, Lord Jesus, what a beautiful creation you have. I don't kind of like the slopes, I'm like, oh gosh, can I just stay alive, you know? And you Connor and, and Jonah just starts doing stuff, and then they jump, and it's just like, and I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. And then, boom, I ate snow. My right shoulder can't lift higher than that right now, you know. And, and I quickly 
realized I'm nothing like these guys. They are in a league of their own. And I was experiencing a little bit of an awakening yesterday. And I have to tell my wife and kids I'm actually not a good skier because I thought I was. And, and that's kind of what happens when we get in the presence of God. And that's what the law does. The law brings truth. And I didn't understand how bad I was as a skier until I skied with people that's been skiing for a long time. And the truth about myself was revealed. And that doesn't mean that I can't come close to that. That just means I'm not that at this point. And so that's what the Paul said, what the law does. The law reveals how bad sin really is. And so when we have the Levitical law, sometimes we're afraid of the law of God. But see, think about this. In a marriage, right, there's laws, right? And what does those laws do? Those, what, are, what are these laws, these agreements that we agree, these laws, what do these laws do for marriage? Does it prevent marriage from being good? Or does it help marriage be good? Does it, do these laws break relationship? Or does it bring us into deeper relationship? See what the law of God does. It actually brings us into deeper friendship with God. It protects and maintains relationship with God. But at the same time, it helps us understand just how wicked we are. Tap your neighbor and say, you're pretty wicked. Someone said, I've been waiting to tell him that. You and I are completely and utterly broken apart from God. And without the law, we would never know that. The law reveals sin for what it is. But the law also reveals God for who He is. See, the holiness of God is revealed in the law. And we understand He's nothing like us. We bear His image. We bear we are His image. We, we are image bearers. But we are not like Him fundamentally. We have to be transformed. And that makes us think, well, how is that possible? How do we get to a place where we get transformed? I love what Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. He said, For by a single offering, He, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being saved. It's only in the atonement. See, when, when, when Aaron would lay his hand on, that, on that, that, that goat and he would send him into the wilderness outside of the walls of Jerusalem, which would be the wilderness, Jesus, the iniquity, all the iniquity, all the sins was laid upon Christ as an innocent lamb. And all of our sins was atoned for, paid for by him. And it's in Christ alone that you and I can enter into this relationship with the Holy God, where we can have communion with the Holy God. And that's where the law helps guide us in how do we commune with the Holy God. When my wife and I got married, because I love her, because I want to be with her for the rest of my life, I actually love marital laws. I think it actually protects marriage. It makes it healthy. It makes it strong. I don't despise, oh, you know, Honey, I, I like some of these laws, but some of them I don't like. 
No, I like all of them. I want all of them. In fact, can we add some more of them? Because I love my wife so much, I want nothing to separate me or break friendship between me and my wife. We've been married for 15 years. We have five kids. I love them more today than I ever have. And I'm more convinced of the rules and regulations, the laws that we put in place, that Scripture put in place. It's for our benefit. It, it reveals something. And it, it protects something. And it pulls us closer together. And that's why God had to give the Levitical law after He brought Israel out of Egypt, out of a place of sin and slavery. Because with freedom, if we don't have guidelines, we don't know how to relate to God and one another. And Paul said, listen, the righteous don't need the law. They love the law. The law doesn't restrict, it liberates. I remember hating all these laws of God. Goodness gracious, they would make me recite the Ten Commandments. And I was guilty of every one of them in my heart. I said, this is terrible. This is just making me feel so horrible. Can we burn the Bible or something? I don't want to hear that stuff anymore. Oh, but Jesus came and touched my heart on that day. And he didn't make me a little bitter. He gave me a new heart because he alone could atone for my sin and give me a whole new heart. And that night I became a new creation. Anyone that is in Christ is a new creature. That's the promise of God. See, God did not give us the law to condemn us. He gave us the law to reveal who He is and who we were not. And through Christ, we were invited into this relationship that we gave up in the garden. And now He wants us not just to live in this relationship, to function in this relationship under these guidelines. He wants to invite the whole earth into that relationship. And not only do we get to enjoy it, but we get to invite our community and friends into that. Let's stand as we close.